How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to make the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry into a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Powered by Pink Petro, and this is the Voices of Energy. Hello and welcome to the Houston Energy Breakfast. This fireside chat is forging forward, positioning ourselves for the future. So I'm gonna go right now to the uh, KCA president, Mr. Kevin Carpenter, the moderator. Kevin? Thanks, Dave. That was a great welcome. Thanks a lot. Good to see you back again. Uh, this is our third for this year. I think we have one more scheduled in December uh, for an afternoon. Uh, today's Houston Energy Breakfast is hosted by K Carpenter Associates, and at KCA, we help our clients derive value from their uncertainties and risks so that their most important decisions are their best decisions. We started the Houston Energy Breakfast as a platform for thought leadership where energy industry leaders can meet to provide their insights to our client audience. We are very proud that this event continues to bring attendees from the entire value chain for industry updates and knowledge sharing. Today's event will be a little bit different. We have a virtual roundtable discussion versus panel presenters. Uh, we'll sit down with our energy executive panel for a candid discussion on exclusive insights regarding the long-term effects of many things, including the global pandemic, uh, the energy collapse, increasing pressures around environment, sustainability in governments, and of course, the election. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce you to today's panel. Uh, we have Regina Jones, who's the chief legal officer for Baker Hughes. Uh, Ms. Jones joined the company in April of this year. Prior to joining Baker, she served as Executive Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary for Delic U.S. Holdings and Delic Logistics Partners Limited Partnership. Ms. Jones previously worked with Schlumberger Limited, Dynagy Marketing and Trade, Shell Oil Company, and El Paso Energy in various legal and information technology roles. We also have Megan Nutting, EVP for Policy and Communications for Sonova. Ms. Nutting has served as Sonova's Executive Vice President for Policy and Communications since April of 2018. Prior to that, she served as Sonova's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs since joining Sonova in May of 2015. Since 2014, she's also served as the Founder and President of Altitude Strategies Consulting, a consulting agency for both for-profit companies and nonprofit organizations on energy-related policy issues. And then finally, we have Dan Pickering, founder and CIO of Pickering Energy Partners. Uh, Pickering Energy Partners manages client assets via energy strategies focused primarily on public markets and private equity. Prior to Pickering Energy Partners, Mr. Pickering served as the president of Tudor Pickering Holton Company and chief investment officer of TPH Investment Management. Today's moderator is going to be Ms. Katie Maynard, CEO, founder of Ally by Pink Petro. At the end of our chat today, we will open the event for questions from our participants. Your questions can be submitted online uh, throughout the event by using the link on the site, and we'll do our best to get through all the submitted questions. And if you've previously submitted questions, we've received those as well. So Katie, thanks for being with us here today, and now I'll hand it over to you. Thanks so much, Kevin. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Houston. Good morning, the world. It has been a wild 2020. The pandemic, commodity prices, supply chain disruptions, fires, hurricanes, and one wild election. It's early and I hope you have some coffee. Today, we're going to talk about energy, the transition, risk, sustainability, culture, and a whole lot more. And I'm very honored to be here today with you. I'm going to pick on Kevin just a little bit. You know, Kevin is like me and, and others here today, entrepreneurs, uh, Texas entrepreneurs who believe in helping our industry shape the future. And we've worked together for several years, and I absolutely love the Houston Energy Breakfast. It's always a great uh, a place for insights. And so let's talk about that. What is that recovery going to look like? What can we expect in 2021? 
you know, Houston is the global brain trust in energy and playing a humongous role in this big shift. I think it's really hard. You know, people are, uh, the sentiments out there are mixed. It's a difficult time. But what I know is that history tells us this. Human ingenuity drives us forward after periods of uh, downturns. Uh, The plague drove massive innovation and change uh, centuries ago. War drove the industrialization of our economy, the automobile, the food revolution. So while things seem very challenging, in challenge, I think we can find light. And so I'm excited to introduce you to you today uh, three of our amazing panelists. You've heard a little bit about them and their technical backgrounds, but let's get into the people side of our folks. So I'm going to pick first on Dan Pickering. So Dan, I understand when we met that you are one of the first oil and gas executives that bought a Tesla. Tell us about that. Yeah, Katie, I'd like to say that it was research, but I bought a Tesla because it seemed like a cool car and it was a very fun car. I can tell you that it that Teslas don't do particularly well in floodwaters and I no longer have a Tesla. It was claimed by nature. So maybe that was um, nature's way of telling me I needed to get back to my oil and gas roots, but I'm a fan of the vehicles, but I drive a land cruiser now, and so I'm a proud gas guzzling consumer today. There you go. All right, so I'm now going to pick on uh, Megan. So Megan has run for political office and is obviously now the head of, or as, at the t- same time, was running policy and communications at Sonova Energy here in Houston. Tell us a little bit more about your stint in politics. My stint in politics, yeah, I um, I ran for the Colorado House of Representatives in 2017, 2018. I ran against six men and worked the entire time that I was running for office. It was an incredible experience. I got to meet with a lot of people. Um, I loved going door to door, which obviously you can't do now. And it was fun talking about policies that I wanted to work on if I had gotten into the state legislature. So I, I highly recommend it if you if you have the time and ability and interest. Um, and I'm always happy to talk to you about that offline if you want to run for office. And you came in, you came in, was it, I think it was second, right? Oh, I came, yeah, in my race, I came in second. Yep. Well, congratulations. That's a very admirable thing to do. I know it's uh, something we all might say we might want to do. And then when it comes to it, it's very difficult to put yourself out there. So why waste a good crisis? Regina Jones, you joined a company mid-pandemic. I think you said you know uh, maybe two dozen um, employees you've met face-to-face. How's it been starting a new company and a new job, particularly in the middle of COVID? So, you know, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be here, Katie, and allowing Baker Hughes the opportunity to participate. It's interesting, the question, because it's absolutely exactly 24 people today because I met one person this morning in person. And Baker Hughes has almost 60,000 employees all over the world. And it's really interesting because coming in, I've met a total of 24 in person. Every other experience I've had has been virtual. Now, I have also recognized that there's been a real silver lining in that because although I don't, I'm not able to rub shoulders with people and I'm not able to see them physically in the room. I don't know how tall they are. And so there's aspects that you just lose in that interaction. But I also know what books they read. I know what, whether they have pets. I know whether they have, if they have newborns, I get to meet them because they're holding them during the meeting. And I get to experience a a more personal side, I think, to the people that I know, because I know what their living rooms look like, their dogs, all of those nuances that are the true individual versus the corporate professional profile that oftentimes people want to project in the office. So it's been really interesting. It's still a real challenge to build deep relationships versus just, you know, what you engage on, how you engage on the screen, but still it's been a great interaction. And um, Baker Hughes has a great culture. So I've been able to experience that firsthand. Great. You know, I, I absolutely, it's been great getting to know all three of you and 
in uh, in more of a personal capacity. And I thought it would be good to start off with that before I start grilling you with great questions. So let's get into it. You know, the energy transition, ESG, big, 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 big buzzwords. Where are, Where's your focus? Let's start with you, Dan. Yeah. So energy transition, I think, remember that, that we are a uh, an asset manager, and we're we're kind of trying to think practically about what the implications for the energy transition are for conventional energy companies, as well as as those companies that are that are more active in in alternative energy renewables, et cetera. I have a couple of thoughts here, Katie. I think from my perspective, there is not a hotter topic in the energy sector than what the energy transition is all about. It's very undefined at this point. Um, You talk to some investors and they think it means renewables, wind and solar. You talk to other investors and it's batteries and storage or electric vehicles so or hydrogen. There are so many things out there. It is a clearly a market that's growing quickly. The society has decided that um, we need to do a better job with carbon. and, And so that's pushing a lot of investment. There's a ton of money trying to get involved in the space. Again, Wild West not exactly sure how to do it. I think we're going to see a lot of money made, a lot of money lost. The real question is, is what kind of returns are we going to see? And so I think my message would be the energy transition is real. What's probably lost right now is that it is not an either or. I think a vast majority of the public, not necessarily the folks tuning in Energy Breakfast, but the vast majority of the public um, think of it as one or the other. You know, the word transition implies an overlap. I think that overlapping period is going to be measured in decades. And so as an investor, we're we're spending time trying to think through how long is this transition take? What does that mean for things like conventional oil demand? And what does it mean for the growth rate of renewable areas and, and batteries and storage and hydrogen and things like that? So you know, figuring out the near-term revenue impacts, the near-term sort of demand impacts. There's a ton of uncertainty. I think people overestimate how fast all this will happen. And so right now, my sense is that there's a bit of a an exuberance around the alternatives and renewable and solar side. Sorry, Megan, you can talk about that when we get there. But there's probably an over-exuberance about how fast this will happen. And Tesla Everybody sees Tesla as a, a stock that's up tenfold this year, and it's two and a half times bigger than Exxon. And the flip side is you have energy companies, conventional energy companies trading at three times cash flow. So I think there will be a long transition. There's room right now clearly for conventional and new energy companies. And I think ESG is different than energy transition, and ESG is something that companies are dedicating more resources to, and they're going to have to get better at it. And our big view is that conventional energy companies need to spend more time on this. They're not going to get off the hook just because oil prices are low. And that this is something that uh, we'll be talking about for the next five or six years. And the conventional energy guys that don't make positive steps around ESG are going to have a higher cost of capital, going to have fewer investors interested. It's a real issue as well. So I'll stop there. So speaking of Megan, Megan, I, you know, we talked about this because I published a a piece not too long ago in USA Today about how Texas is leading the transition. Texas is leading in oil and gas. Texas is leading in solar. Sorry, there's a lot of Texas here because I'm a little pro-Texas. You know, what is your view on this? And, And please, Give us your insight on, you know, the energy transition and renewables. Happy to. Um, and by the way, that was a great piece in USA Today. If, if all of you listening haven't had a chance to read it, I encourage you to. It came out, what, about a week ago, Katie? Yeah, about a week ago. So um, look that up. It's, it's a great piece about energy in Texas and where we're going. And I, I, think it, I think it says a lot. But I work for Sonova Energy Corporation. We are a Houston-based residential solar and storage services provider. Um, we operate all across the U.S., as well as in Puerto Rico, Guam, and Saipan. We just reached our 100,000th customer this past week, which was really exciting. 
And we went public. We had our IPO about a year and a few months ago, July of last year. So it's an exciting space to be in. And we're really proud to be to be based and centered in Houston, which we think is the energy capital of the world, regardless of type of energy. And there is a lot of there are a lot of exciting things happening in Texas right now. I think solar is projected to grow in Texas alone 150% this year, but it grew 130% last year. From 2010 to the end of 2019, there was a 15,000% increase in solar in Texas. And Houston city government has gone 100% wind and solar for its operations. So wastewater treatment plants, the airports, the zoo. And I, one of the things I think is the most exciting is there are, there are over 260 companies of the world's most influential companies that have committed to going 100% renewable um, all over the world. But Texas, thanks to all the space and the, and the great policies that you have there, accounted for more than a quarter of all corporate renewable energy deals signed around the world um, this past year. So there's a lot of exciting things happening in this space and a lot of exciting things happening specifically in Texas. All right. So Regina, the energy transition and your focus. Yeah. So it's interesting because when I was listening to Dan and Stephanie's comments, they highlighted a few things. One is it's very much a near-term issue as well as a long-term issue and also a, a real challenge and focus both within Texas as the energy capital of the world, but also a very global issue. And within Baker Hughes, we're really looking at it from a global perspective and, and making sure that we meet the dual challenge of we still need to meet the world's energy demand, but we also want to make sure we're aligned and we achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement in parallel. And what we're seeing is governments around us are really shaping policy and regulatory frameworks with the ultimate objective to get to a lower carbon energy future. And as we do that, we've really tried to focus on you know, looking at how can we play a real leadership role in achieving our results to try to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And we've stepped out and made a commitment ourselves, and we're positioning ourselves as a leading energy technology company to really help to drive and enable the energy transition, but also recognizing that we need to support our customers and we need to help them reduce their carbon footprint as well. And that's by providing the products and the lower emissions products that help them get to those targets. But again, still in the spirit of recognizing that this is a global challenge that we have to deal with. And like Dan was saying, it's developing as we go. So the right answer isn't there, but it really does require, you know, looking at things from the global perspective and then staying laser focused on the objective that we're all still trying to jointly achieve. Oh, that's great. You know, I when I met with you, we we talked at length about this. And one of the things you said was, I think I think you said, you know, the energy transition is a team sport. Can you speak a little bit more to that and what that means for you uh, and Baker Hughes? Yeah. So thank you for that question, Katie. You know, I think about that often because, you know, just in all candor, grass, <laughs> greenhouse gas emissions, they're not going to reduce themselves. And the impact that to the environment, it requires that we all have equal commit commitment and real intention. And it, you know, business models have to change. It's broader than even just the energy industry or oil and gas. It comes down to the decisions and the choices that we make in some of the larger companies, the smaller companies, all the way down to the decisions that individual consumers make when they're determining now what impact they're going to have on the environment or what footprint they're going to leave. So we have to do this together because if we don't, then we're never going to achieve our goals. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's a global issue. It's a real issue and it's going to require alignment and commitment from every single individual in that regard. So, you know, within Baker Hughes, we try to push the awareness and understanding, not just what of not just of what we're trying to accomplish, but partnering with our customers, engaging our employees, and helping everyone understand that you know the real challenge and the the need for real commitment on all fronts, and that includes all of us. Yeah. So you you talked a little bit about the role that governments play. I'm going to throw this one at, at Dan. You know, because we're all just 
waiting with bated breath, right? Uh, no matter what you believe, you know, what does a Biden or Trump administration mean in the, the broader t- context of the energy transition? Sure. So let's start with Biden, because that looks like that's the most likely outcome at, at this point. And uh, but you're also looking at the most likely outcome being a split House and Senate. And so the reality of that is, I think, a couple things. One, a, clearly a stronger commitment to renewables. You know, Biden's published Green New Deal, et cetera. It's going to be harder to get some of those things done. But I think you can expect a tougher, generally a tougher regulatory environment for conventional oil and gas companies, generally a, a favorable funding and supportive environment for renewable and green energy. And dramatic change got harder with a a split House and Senate. So I think unequivocally negative for conventional oil and gas, potentially some upward pressure on commodity price, because if you have a, a tougher regulatory environment for oil and gas companies, maybe that's less spending, maybe that's less supply. Demand ought to be uh, stimulated by the stimulus package that's coming regardless of of the the winner of the presidency. And so you could see an an environment where you've got over the next two or three or four years, you've got this fiscal stimulus and and a recovering economy. You've got um, a greener energy patch, but maybe less uh, U.S. hydrocarbon supply that could wind up with higher hydrocarbon prices. If you take a Trump presidency, it's kind of status quo. And status quo also has this supply-demand dynamic where a recovering economy and U.S. supply probably a little bit easier to rise, but folks don't want to spend much. So we're probably in a higher commodity price environment either way. Tougher for renewables, but I think the market is pushing renewables and and, uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily, it's not going to be inhibited by a Trump presidency. So you've got fast growth on the green side and you've got potentially uh, slower growth on the conventional side. And really, obviously, a vaccine, you know, uh, some sort of solution that's going to drive uh, public health will help contribute to the demand rise. I mean, do you, do you see the the demand? What's your view on, on you know, demand potentially up in a post-COVID COVID world? Are we looking like at a nascent recovery? Or are we looking at a, you know, everyone starts getting on planes again? Yeah. So I think it's, you have to deal in probabilities here because there are a lot of unknowns. And it's, it's tough in normal circumstances to figure out supply and demand. And it's even tougher in the kind of unnormal circumstances we're in now. What I would say is, is I'm encouraged on the margin on the demand side just from stimulus and all the money that's pouring in the into the world economy so stimulus is good in the short term we got to pay that bill what i'm a little nervous about is that once you get past all this money flooding into the system i mean there are a lot of people out of work and it's not clear that they're coming back to work immediately and so it's not obvious to me that the the underlying drivers of the economy are necessarily as robust as if you looked at the stock market as an indicator. So long-winded way of saying, I think all this money coming in should be positive for the economic environment. That's what people are keying off of. You know, there's a self-reinforcing positivity that's going on. So demand ought to be getting better. And, but we need to think about that as I believe it's going to be 22 before demand really recovers. Just a couple of quick stats. You know, flying is 8 million barrels a day of consumption. We're down 70%. Uh, gasoline is 35, gasoline and diesel transportation fuels, 35, 40 million barrels a day. We're down about 10%. We've got a 8 to 10 million barrel a day bogey that we've got to recover from. And it doesn't appear to me that we we get back anywhere close to normal without without some sort of a vaccine, which to me, everybody I talk to, Houston Medical Center, great facilities here in Houston, they're talking about the second half of 21. They're not talking about next month. They're not talking about first quarter. They're talking about second half. So I would say that when I think about what all this means in terms of, of commodity price, 
oil and gas prices get better in 22, they probably slog along here in 21. So I'm I'm expecting for the oil patch the next kind of 14 months to be a grind. Sorry to say. Oh wow! Well, that was uh, that was yeah. that was a great was a note. Fun. So. No, I mean, I think it's good to, to to paint the reality and the possibilities because in so many ways, we've also been proven in 2020 that things can happen and completely swing the world in a, in a different way. So everything we say here obviously has that caveat. Um, so, so let's talk about jobs. You know, uh, Megan, you and I have had this conversation um, and obviously, Dan, please weigh in and and and. Regina weigh in, you know, what does the sector look like over the next five to 10 years, the role of the workforce, how important that is? And more specifically to you, Megan, you know, do we have transferable skill sets? Is this, uh, is this possible? Can I, you know, can I transition from an oil and gas world, you know, to the renewables world? And what does that look like? Yes, the answer is definitely yes. Um, the solar industry right now employs more people than the coal industry, about 250,000 people. Obviously, we've lost some jobs um, due to the pandemic, but over the past, I'd say, five years, solar employment increased five times faster than job growth in the overall U.S. economy. So we're growing like crazy. We know how to create jobs. And a study came out recently that said half of um, Gen Zers are interested in a career of solar more than any other type of energy job. And the jobs will be there for them when they're when they want them, especially with all of the states and cities um, and counties committed to 100 percent clean energy. I, one in three Americans live in a place with 100 percent clean energy commitment. So there's a ton of jobs out there. There's going to be a ton more. I think that clean energy can play a really significant role in our economic recovery. As we need to put people back to work, installing renewables and building renewables can be done safely. We're considered essential workers um, under the federal definition of that and then under many state definitions as well. And when it comes to transferable skills, absolutely. The the skills are, are extremely transferable from especially the oil and gas industry, from the energy industry. You know, if you know energy, then you know energy. And a lot of people within Sonova, um, I'd say the vast majority, come from the energy industry in Houston, from some aspect of it. So if you know energy finance, then we are hiring energy finance people. If you know, you know, energy hiring, we're hiring, you know, we're hiring more people to help with that. So we have we have 40 or 50 job openings just right now alone. And that's not that's not going to slow down anytime soon. And and so many of those skills are transferable. And and once again, this industry is just poised for growth regardless of what happens um, and is going to going to keep growing. So the jobs are there and are, are going to keep being there. Yeah. You know, Regina, I got to tell you, because I am a, a big fan of the GE Baker, Baker GE, now Baker uh, family. And it's been exciting to see what you're building around energy and tech, because really we've been I mean, we are technical, right? We are technical. There are lots of opportunities around digital. Talk a little bit about the jobs from a perspective in in Baker Hughes as an energy technology company and how how you're moving energy forward from that perspective. Yep. So thank you, Katie. I also want to echo some of Megan's comments that she was making earlier because it really is about, you know, retooling ourselves. If I just first stick to the workforce and workers, because you know, transitioning, you know, the energy transition is one thing, but even those skills of our workforce, they're transferable. And as we transition our company to an energy technology company, there's natural transformation that also takes place with just retooling, whether it's products and technology that we're leveraging, or whether it's also shifting and beginning to look now at more in other spaces as around hydrogen and renewables and geothermal and carbon capture. You know, it's How do you take the technology, the expertise, the assets that are in your portfolio and transition those? How do you embrace adjacent technologies as well? And so within Baker Hughes, as we began to transition as a company and, you know, referencing the GE element as well, we're able to bring new technology and leverage our technology for our clients and incorporating it into our products to ultimately drive the objectives, as I mentioned earlier, of energy tra- around energy transition, the Paris Climate Agreement, and really help continue to transform our industry 
as well around those same goals. Yeah. You know, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, you know, uh, the S and ESG, which is really around the social elements here, here that we're talking about and, you know, and the workforce. And so I'll throw it back at, at you, uh, Regina, how important, you know, is that diverse workforce, you know, incorporating more of what society looks like right into our, into our energy companies and leveraging that full talent? Um, what are some of the things you guys are, are doing around that at Baker? It's absolutely important. And, you know, on many different levels within Baker Hughes, we have four core values, grow, lead, care and collaborate. And you really just kind of highlight two of them, which is care and collaborate, quite frankly. And having a diverse workforce, that's just honestly, it's the price of doing business. It's you should be reflective of and embrace the communities that you work in. And we have to have diversity at every single level. But diversity is not just about, you know, the mix of people on your team. It's also about making sure you have internal equity within the company and making sure that we're leveraging the value that comes along with having that diverse workforce. So when we talk about caring as part of our culture, it resonates. And it's expected that we will take additional steps and engage our employees directly and hear their voice as it relates to how should Baker Hughes be engaging? What is it like to work here? And how can we be better? But then it also flows into our clients, working with our clients and ensuring with our suppliers as well that we have diversity in our supplier base and in our portfolio that we direct our spend such that supplier spend is with diverse suppliers. So it really is making sure that entire footprint and that entire environment that we have the ability to impact and influence is reflective of the communities wherein we operate. So diversity, inclusion, are all really important as well as associated equity that goes along with that. Yeah. So, and congratulations on that. I know it's it's tough. The oil and gas industry is generally, when we look at numbers, you know, dead last or next to last. And I'm not going to let the, uh, the renewable industry say that it's that much better. Really broadly, energy has a lot of, a lot of work to do around this. But Megan, your company is doing a great job at driving uh, equity. You know, we joke around that you look around Sonova and it's it's a pretty diverse place to work. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the, the diversity aspect is incredibly important to us. I mean, from the top level down, we just added another woman to our board, Nora Brown- Brownwell. She's a former FERC commissioner, among many other incredible accomplishments. Um, we're really excited to have her. And also within the company, And I attribute this in part to being in Houston, which is one of the most diverse cities in the country, but we are um, 37% white, so um, majority minority company, um, which is something we're really excited about and, and, and really focused on. So we... We encourage other renewable companies to um, to try to meet those standards. Like in any energy industry, we of course we have a long way to go. The Solar Foundation puts out an annual report on jobs, and and according to that, the solar industry right now is about twenty six percent women. Um, so we we definitely have a long way to go in that more broadly. Um, but within Sonova, we are very committed to diversity on a number of levels: age, gender, ethnicity you know, all of the metrics that we can look at and we, and we track that closely. Great. No. So, okay. I'm going to wrap up with a final question, kind of a rapid round here. And then I really want to get into the questions that are coming in. So if you have not submitted your question, get it in so we can get it in queue. We've got some great questions that are teed up. So 2020 unprecedented year, your biggest learning, Dan. My biggest learning of 2020 is people are incredibly resilient. You Take what is thrown at you and and deal with it. And so anytime you look forward and face these big challenges, the answer is the world figures it out. So you got to be optimistic about the, the ability of our country, our industry, our companies to to figure it out and succeed. Megan, biggest opportunity. Or biggest learning. Biggest learning. <laughs> what I realized in 2020, when when this pandemic started, I was I was concerned about you know how various companies would fare, how renewables would fare, 
how people would react. And what I've learned is that the demand for solar energy, for residential solar energy, is incredibly robust. We had our biggest growth year this year, um, even with the pandemic going on. So what I've learned is that you know, you can't stop consumer demand. Nothing's going to stop consumers from from getting what they want. And um, renewables are continuing to be poised for huge, huge growth over the coming years. All right, Regina, biggest learning. Yeah, biggest learning, besides the fact that Dan stole my word, which was resilience, I would say is change. Because this year has shown us that first of all, we are resilient and it's it's amazing what we've been able to deal with as just a country and still come out and continue to progress in a positive way. But the change and the fact that we have to be prepared for it at all times, we have to drive it at all times, and we've got to be able to adapt and recycle and reinvent ourselves as we go through that process. So I think change is the new normal. And we just need to make sure that we're leveraging, like Dan said, resilience and being just, you know, courageous as we move forward and progress through it. Great. I appreciate that, guys. Y'all are uh, rock stars. And I got to hand it to Dan. Way to way to go. You're, you're surrounded, right, by some very intelligent, um, smart, smart women here in the energy industry. So let's get into some of these questions. The first question is... How quickly do you think that the transition to lower carbon transportation will occur? Uh, when will we have more than 50% of the cars being electric? Anybody want to take that one? I'm, I'm happy to speak to that. Um, I think it's going to occur more quickly than we realize. I mean, California just issued a mandate. I think they all of their new car sales will be um, electric vehicles by 2035, 2030, 2035. So that's well within our lifetimes. That's incredibly soon. I know New Jersey is considering something similar and um, and then it's just a, a matter of time from there. Also, I've heard something like 95% of, of people who own an electric vehicle would never own, once they own it, they would never own any other type of car. And because it's so efficient, it's so cheap. And so we're going to be transitioning our fuel sources, even for um, even for cars and our transportation to to a different type of fuel source. And I, I think too, as we have automated driving, um, I know Lyft and Uber and Tesla are all looking into this, um, where you know to, to make it so that we don't have to drive. It's um, electric vehicles are just more efficient for upkeep, and so um, so they'll probably use EVs as well, and, and that could. Uh, create another sea change in our in our transportation. Katie, I'd like to to weigh in as well, just to think about. So California, twenty thirty five, all vehicles. That's fifteen years away. The average life of a vehicle is about ten years. So if you assume that it takes the country ten years to get to where California is at, that says twenty forty five. It takes ten years to roll the fleet. That says twenty fifty five. I think the way I think about it is that EVs are going to grow very rapidly off a small base and it's going to take a very long time before they're a majority of the cars on the road. You need new models and all of the automakers are bringing new models. You're going to have to get more affordable and that's what these new models are going to be. They are inexpensive to operate. They're expensive to buy. So total cost of ownership is not very low yet. And the other thing speaking from experiences, you've got to get range on electric vehicles. Right now, if you've got an EV and want to go to Austin back in a day, it's a nightmare. I lived it, slept in my car because I couldn't get it charged in time to get home. Now that's four years ago, but batteries aren't much better than they were four years ago yet. So you've got to get a 500 mile range on a battery or it's going to be tough for EVs to be anything but your your kind of in-town car. And a lot of folks can't afford two cars. So I think it is gonna, it's a fascinating, exciting industry. It's gonna take a while to get there and think we will. I think we're, we're staring it in the face. It's just, it's not gonna come as fast as I think Elon Musk would like it to come. You know, if I could chime in on that, As well, I think it's really going to require a convergence of three things, which is first, you need the technology to get there. And 
the various aspects of it, like Dan was just talking about battery technology, as well as you need the political regulatory framework to line up with that. Like in Megan's reference to California, you know, other jurisdictions will need to align as to kind of where directionally they're going. And then you've got the consumer aspect as well, because, you know, they had one direction, but you've still got to be at a price point. You've got to have the technology and the offering that consumers want to have, and they've got to embrace it as well. And all three of those really have to come together. And I think that's what will drive the timing. But, you know, right now, this is me personally speaking, I don't really see the pure alignment on all three of those yet. So developments in the space will will really you know, give us more insight into kind of the when, because I, I think it will be equivalent to what Dan was saying. It will be some time before we're fully there. So, Regina, this is a good follow-up question for you. Very impactful comments you shared regarding uh, the importance of the energy transition and the critical need for a global vision and not just localized. Being the head of legal for Baker, Hughes, do you foresee this transition period to include serious legal consequences? And if so, how soon and which global areas will be the first to initiate? Wow. So serious legal consequences. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the hot seat. Yeah. I I mean, if I could be honest with you, and I will really give you a lawyer's answer to that, which is it depends. The consequences of you know, just policy and regulatory, they're there, whatever environment we're operating in, you know, and the impacts can be associated with political regimes, the impact can be associated with economic aspects, safety, health, you name it. So will there be serious legal consequences? Honestly, I think all legal consequences can be serious, but the, but the reality is that things will change and they will continue to change and they will continue to have impacts to us all. So I I don't really, if I had to tag it, I wouldn't tag it as serious. I would just say that it's going to be a continuing change. We're going to need to continue to adapt and that there will be in some areas sweeping requirements that we change, but in others, similar to the electric car example, policies and regulations move slow. So in most instances, even when something's enacted, there's still this period of time that people have to adjust and challenge, et cetera. So I don't really see any serious legal consequences. I just see continued evolution of regulations to align with whatever those challenges are that are presented by this. And and there's going to be a myriad of them, but we're just going to have to continue to watch and adapt as things develop. All right. Well, This is a really good question, Dan, uh, for you. What is your opinion of initiatives that promote carbon capture technology R&D and the idea of establishing a carbon innovation hub to achieve environmental aspirational goals of turning CO2 and other greenhouse gases into valuable commodities? So I think if you wouldn't be in favor of that, it's like being against motherhood and apple pie, right? I mean, I think that clearly there are many, many technologies that we as a, a world need to be pushing ahead. The question is the cost and the timing. And the more money that gets spent, the more, the higher the odds that you're going to have a technology that really makes a difference on all of the CO2 and, and greenhouse gas emissions issues. So the answer is, I think there's money being spent there. Companies are spending money on this. And that's another point I would make generally is that industry is way ahead of regulation. There are many, many, many companies doing a lot more than they have to do because they think it's the right thing to do and it's going to to pay off in terms of generating either more customers, better customers, higher profitability, good returns. So the industry, both on on green and conventional, is way ahead of regulation. Uh, But carbon capture, it's still kind of far off. It's expensive. Folks are spending money on it. Are they spending money to virtue signal? Are they spending money because they think it's going to pay off? Too early to tell. So, yes, I am for it. The practicality is we got to get the technologies have to get better. So you're going to need you're probably going to need government support and or regulation to really accelerate it. So this is a really good question for all three of you. And I have an opinion too, but I'll let you guys uh, give your view. 2020 has our future workforce of young 
professionals rethinking their career paths in oil and gas. If today this event was filled with hundreds of ambitious college grads, what would your message be to them? And that was in all caps. What would your message be to them? Who wants to take that one first? I'm I'm happy to address that. My message to anyone entering the energy workforce is, well, first of all, join the energy workforce. It's it's an incredible place to be, um, regardless of type of energy. As far as solar is concerned, um, the International Energy Agency has said that renewable energy is expected to overtake coal as the primary means of producing electricity by 2025, um, and that solar is now the cheapest electricity in history. I always get surprised when people call renewables alternative at this point because the the combined share of solar and wind and global generation will be about 30% over the next decade. That's hardly alternative when you have you know a third of, of the energy industry. And in the U.S., the EIA has said that renewable resources are and will be the fastest growing source of U.S. electricity generation. So it's a really exciting time to join, to join this industry. And when you think about the overwhelming growth that renewable energy is in the middle of and will have over the next decade and, or two decades, I'd say it's definitely, definitely come join this industry. Great. Yeah, I would echo that. And I would say, don't just, it's not even just join. This is an exciting industry and these are exciting times. We are taking energy forward. So if there's a whole bunch of young people listening, you need to get on board now because as we begin to continue this shift, continue moving through the energy transition and changing the world, quite frankly, every day when we do it, why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? Dan, what do you think? You know, you left the energy industry. I've left the energy industry and we're entrepreneurs. What's your message to young people? Yeah, so I have, I wrote down two things. I got the benefit of going last. I would tell young people, be very careful about, you know, pick your spots. And the, it's, it's much easier to think about jumping into the energy transition piece of this business because that has some secular growth in front of it. And so that is going to be inherently a, a stronger, a more dynamic set of companies to work for. If you're looking at the conventional energy business, you better pick your spots. Companies that have good balance sheets and good cultures and that are finding ways to be successful as we step through the next. If you're 20 and you're going to have a 45-year career, you'd better pick a good company to work for. And the other is you'd better have a diversified set of skills. You had better go in there developing capabilities that you can take through the organization or through your career, regardless of how your company progresses. So that's what I would tell individuals. I think the, the I'm glad you asked the question because I think the conventional oil and gas business is going to have to, pardon my French, work its ass off to become attractive or to be attractive and attract talent and skills because it's not happening now. You know, you, you can survey folks coming out of college. This is not an industry they're attracted to, the conventional oil and gas business. And so you'd better find a way to make your company interesting and attractive to attract and retain folks. Last point I'll make, throwing cold water on things. If you're 20 and getting in this business, you better plan for change over the next 45 years. And I've got a two-year-old and... I'm not sure I would push them toward the conventional oil and gas business because I think if you're thinking about that, that's an 80-year time frame and it's going to be a very, very different world over the next 60 to 80 years. So I'm a little bit, I'm excited about what we have in store for us. And I think the challenges to the workforce, you're going to have to take control of your career because it is not going to be a static environment for you. So if I could just chime on to that, because I think the advice that was just given, it's a good life skill advice, which is regardless of what energy, what an industry you move into, you better be positioned to change yourself as you go. 
you need to be positioned to kind of reinvent your skill set and stay on top of it. Because whether it's energy today or whether it's another industry tech tomorrow, it will change and you've got to change with it. So, you know, I think that's great advice for any person, quite frankly, but young people in particular. Katie, what would you what would you tell people? Well, so for young people, everything you said, especially get in, get in, get in. We need you for mid-level. I'd say business business in Texas is the most favorable environment. If it's time to try your hand at being your own boss or maybe not working big and going and working for small entrepreneur firms who want to, you know, be a part of the growth, I'd look at that um, and try your hand at that. I mean, Houston is a very favorable uh, economic environment. And that's why I think that the Texas is going to continue to lead in this space over the next 30, 40 years and why I'm going to stick you know, stick with it. So, so it, it'll be interesting, but it's always a question, jobs, 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 what's going to happen. And, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic. All the things that you've talked about, you know, making, making culture attractive, culture, 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 and financial balance sheets are going to be the companies that win. And Dan, that's, a, that was a great point. You got to find places that have, that are great to work for, and that are obviously uh, profitable and they're looking right for the future. And, uh, I think we've got some 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 companies on the line here that uh, might be hiring. So um, we're going to wrap. So the last question I have you in the last minute is, and it's real simple. It's 2021 biggest opportunity. Dan, go first. I think energy assets are are going to be generally they are becoming generationally cheap, and so I think that investing in energy assets in 2021 is going to be a very high returning opportunity set. So getting some capital employed in 2021 is uh, my best idea. Megan, biggest opportunity in 2021. Biggest opportunity is continued huge growth. Um, it It's looking more and more like um, Biden may end up being our president. If that's the case, he's committed to investing $2 trillion in clean energy spending and 100% clean electricity carbon free standard by 2035. Um, even if that doesn't, even if he ends up not winning the presidency, there's still a huge opportunity for growth. So I'm looking forward to to what we can do in 2021 and, and that really being the, you know, sort of the baseline for growth and, and going from there. Wait, Regina, biggest opportunity. Yeah, I think the biggest opportunity of 2021 is the same one as, to, as of today as well, which is technology and being in front of it and embracing it and driving new technology, being open to innovation. To me, that's what we need to be focused on moving ahead, technology and innovation, being smart about the choices we make in both of those spaces. Thank you so much for having me, KCA, and thanks to our panelists and to TV Worldwide for putting on, uh, and all the sponsors for putting on a great uh, great event today. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Katie. Thanks Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Katie.